You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 294, and I'm your host today. I'm Dr. Nathan Gilmore, a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, though right now Emmanuel College is a an ethereal reality, one that exists not in a place, but in all places. Coming to you from a decidedly more decided place, namely Woodstock, Georgia, is Dr. Michael Farmer. Michael, how are things today? It's good. Uh, you know, maybe the real Emanuel College was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Sorry. That's phenomenal. Sorry. That's phenomenal. Nathan, I wanted, to, I wanted to point something out to you and to maybe our listeners who haven't noticed this or have noticed it, which is that in the intros to the show, I'm the only one who ever says, hey, this is episode 923 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. You and David both oh, really? just announce it as another episode, but I always give the episode number. Oh, interesting. And if we'll our see, listeners I, I... are wondering why that is, that's because I do the editing, and when I say the number at the beginning, I know what to name the file at the end. Well, there you go. Well, I've, I've, I've done it this time. Perhaps I'll make it a habit. Perhaps I won't. Hard to say. Uh, but the other person, listeners, uh, who doesn't call out the episode numbers is Dr. David Grubbs. Uh, he's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, David, how are you, how are you enduring? Uh, I, you know, I endure, you know, like a, I, I'm a rock, I'm an island, right? And, and I don't ever remember what the episode number is, which is why I don't lead with it. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, lots going on around the Christian Humanist Radio Network this week. Uh, we've got another episode of City of Man, uh, featuring the Space Trilogy, uh, David, you are uh, one of the uh, space cadets, so talk a bit about that. <laughs> yeah, it's about Paralandra, uh, the weird middle act of the space trilogy, um, in which our hero goes to uh, the planet Venus in order to have really long conversations that uh, should be reminding everybody that C.S. Lewis is also working on his uh, preface to Paradise Lost at the same time. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, we've got a sectarian review episode on some YouTube personality uh, whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce, uh, but the episode description is weird enough that I'm just going to leave it there and say go listen to it. Uh, we've also got a Christian feminist podcast episode on Christian sexual ethics. Uh, Michael, have you uh, edited that one yet so that you can tell us a little bit about what is entailed there yeah so it's a four-person episode with victoria and katie and um our friend sarah thomas and marie house uh all talking about nadia bowles weber and a rather more conservative vision of christian sexual ethics it's a good episode uh so yeah that that'll be up uh, friday which means it was up four days ago 
And finally, listeners, uh, the day before this one releases, there will be another Christian Humanist Profiles interview. Uh, this one with analytic theologian Oliver Crisp. Uh, good conversation that we had there uh, on you know a, a field of theology that I hadn't really dealt with before. So I had a good time with that one. So Oliver Crisp is about to. the most British name I've ever heard. And he's got about the most <laughs> British voice you've ever heard either. He really does. It's, he really it's does. Just, it, it was a fun episode. It is a pleasure to listen to Oliver Crisp say words. His his name could not be more British if his name was Lord Jeffrey Wentworthington. <laughs> <laughs> well, well great listeners, on that note, I, I submit <laughs> that my previous interviewee Simon Gathercole might have a more British name. Have you guys seen uh, Barton Fink, the movie Barton Fink? No, I don't know that I have. It's, it's a movie about a kind of radical playwright who goes Hollywood. It's based on Clifford Odets. But anyway, at one point he says that he writes for the common man, not for Lord Nigel Grinch Gibbons. <laughs> nice. I want to interview him. He sounds fun. <laughs> how to follow that. Ah, I know how to follow it with Sophocles. Uh, today we are talking about uh, one of Sophocles' plays that doesn't often get assigned uh, to, you know, your high school or your college literature classes. Uh, it is Philoctetes. It's a tale of the Trojan War, uh, and it features uh, a familiar character and some slightly less familiar characters, but in some very interesting and new ways. But to kick things off, Michael, since this play is regrettably part of the, you know, sort of back catalog of Sophocles' tragedies, uh, since it seldom sees the light of day after Intro to Literature has presented the Oedipus cycle, talk to our listeners a little bit about the events leading up to the first scene and what an Athenian audience might already have known about our three main characters. First, I want to say it's a real shame that this play is lesser known because it is as good as Sophocles' uh, Antigone or Oedipus. I mean, this is a, this is a really great play that kind of throws the whole definition of tragedy into question. So really, this is a play more people should read. And uh, listeners, you ought to go read it, uh, maybe before you even hear us talk about it. There's also a pretty good LibriVox uh, recording of it, if you'd rather hear it read. Uh, the only problem with the LibriVox recording is they've decided that the chorus should, should just be one guy talking uh, with an echo on it. So it sounds like a bunch of people are talking, and that's annoying. But... Uh, really, if you, if you haven't read this play, go read it or listen to it. I think the LibriVox is about an hour and a half. It's worth your time. It's really, really good. Uh, the familiar character is Odysseus. He is probably the most famous Greek hero to us in the modern world. He obviously would have been well known to Sophocles' audience as well. He's a major supporting character in the Iliad. As you know, if you listen to the first series of the core curriculum, and probably even if you didn't. And he's also the protagonist of the Odyssey, which gets its name from his name. His personality in those uh, poems is defined by his craftiness and his willingness to lie to get out of things. And Homer presents those as virtues for the most part, such that when you teach the Odyssey, you, you, have, to, you have to go a ways toward, um, toward getting the students to understand how different the contemporary views of lying are from views in uh, Homer's day. Uh, Sophocles is playing with those personality traits uh, and that reputation. And, and so we get 
a side of Odysseus here that is actually probably more recognizable to us in a, a kind of post-Christian culture than it would have been, I think, to, uh, to readers of the Odyssey in particular. Uh, it's worth noting, um, in some versions of the myths, Odysseus actually lies to try to get out of going to the Trojan War in the first place, but then he ends up having to go because a prophet says they're not going to be able to win it without him, which, while I don't remember it coming up in this play, does connect him to both Philoctetes and to Neoptolemus, um, both of whom are also prophesied to be necessary to win the Trojan War. The other thing that Odysseus is defined by is his desire to get home. That's the whole plot of the Odyssey. And I think that Sophocles must be playing on that desire too, because in Philoctetes, we have another character who really all he wants to do is go home and get off of this island that he's stuck on. Odysseus is not as major a player in Greek tragedy as you might expect him to be, um, but he does show up in a few other plays, most notably Sophocles' Ajax, where he is also not the Odysseus of the Odyssey, but also not the Odysseus of Philoctetes, if that makes sense. He, he has a different role there than he does here and in, in the poems. So let's talk about the two people we are much less familiar with. Um, Philoctetes has not made it into contemporary popular culture the way many of his fellow archives have. Uh, this is probably his most famous appearance, wouldn't you say, Nathan? I mean, other than Danny DeVito in the Disney movie. Right, I'm, and I'm not 100% <laughs> sure that's the same Philoctetes. I'm going to say it's not. <laughs> Philoctetes' fame in the ancient world comes from him doing a favor for Heracles. He, he lights Heracles' funeral pyre when nobody else will do it. And because of that, he's given Heracles' miraculous bow and arrows, which, depending on the version of the myth, never miss their mark. That's certainly what Sophocles says about them here. Philoctetes goes to Troy to fight in a war, at least in part because, like Menelaus, he competed for Helen's love. That never, that never turns up in this play. But he never actually makes it to Troy because he gets abandoned on Lemnos, which is the, the kind of inciting incident of um, the, the play we read. Depending on the version of the myth you hear, Philoctetes ends up making it to Troy because they need that bow and arrow. Sometimes he's the one who kills Paris, Sometimes he's in the Trojan horse. Sometimes he's just kind of there, but he is necessary, or at least his bow and arrow are necessary to win the Trojan War. And the, the weird thing about his um, contemporary reputation is that he, uh, he's a really popular subject for Greek tragedy, and all the major playwrights wrote a Philoctetes, Philoctetes play, but Sophocles is the only version that survives, which may be why we don't know of him. And that's a real shame because the story as Sophocles tells it, I think, is really compelling. And I would be interested to see especially how Euripides would handle a play like that, because it, in parts, this feels like a Euripides play. Um, and we can maybe talk about that later if you want to. Uh, the third major character is Neoptolemus. Am I pronouncing that right? Neoptolemus? Uh, pronounce it how you will. Okay. He's also known as Pyrrhus. He is apparently sired by Achilles during a lull in the Trojan War um, before Achilles is dragged back to the conflict, which is why here he has never met his father. Uh, his major role in the mythology is pretty much exactly what we see here. It is prophesied that they need Philoctetes' arrows and Achilles' son to win the war, so he's brought to Troy to win the war. Most ancient myths present him as a rather brutal individual, much like his father. Sophocles takes a different route, as we'll see. Um, and I, th I think it, it's hard to say more interesting, but certainly uh, 
the version of Neoptolemus in this play is more identifiable to a reader in the 21st century, I think. What have I left out, Nathan? Well, we're going to talk about all three of these characters at some length, so I'm going to actually transition to David, because David, you teach Homer's Odyssey most often of the three of us. Uh, so I want you to talk a little bit about, you know, this version of Odysseus. I mean, uh, when he is on the page next to the sons of Peleus and Atreus, uh, he's the one we root for. Uh, in this play, not so much. Uh, why not? <laughs> well, uh, or were you rooting for him? I don't know. As Michael <laughs> points out, uh, even in the Homeric sources, um, Odysseus is presented as a uh, as a a clever character, even a trickster character um, in moments. And even when he is presented in a more wise or heroic light, um, there's always a degree to which his excellence in rhetoric and self-presentation, um, in his use of language to persuade or to self-present, uh, is is something that is there. So uh, that is in Homer one of his virtues, but in the sense that in that in the kind of the Homeric epics, uh, a hero's virtues are the hero's powers. Right. It's it's less to say that they are good moral qualities, so as to say that they are the powers by which the hero heroes. Right. And for that distinction, see anything that Alistair McIntyre has ever written. Yes. So Odysseus, <laughs> um, Odysseus's cleverness is one of his major assets in uh, the Homeric epics, both the Iliad and the Odyssey. This is one of the ways why one of the one of the means by which he wins, if not the major um, means by which he is able to confront difficulties and win. In this particular play, uh, this notion of using uh, trickery or deception, falsehood uh, as a tactic uh, is held up to ethical examination in a way that it simply isn't in Homer. Uh, and it's not... I sometimes wonder whether we're supposed to ask, be asking ourselves these questions in Homer. Um, the, the narrative voice of the Homeric epics is much more um, laconic in terms of, of making, uh, making statements about how we should uh, be evaluating our heroes. In some ways it reminds me of uh, some of, the, some of the, the narrative voice that you see sometimes in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, where uh, a character's actions are simply presented without that much uh, morally informed commentary to let us know how we're supposed to feel about all that. Right. Genesis and the books of Samuel, too, I always think of in that respect. Yeah. Uh, but Sophocles is a highly ethical thinker, um, and he's always got the the moral implications of uh, people's actions uh, in in view. Right. That that's always there in a Sophocles play. So this, this feature of Odysseus, which is just a feature in Homer, um, becomes something to examine. So the play begins 
for, with Odysseus and Neoptolemus, uh, with Odysseus sort of giving Neoptolemus the sort of his mission his mission briefing. <laughs> All right, uh, this is how, this is this is your assignment, and this is how you're going to perform it. He knows that it's something that Odysseus there or that Neoptolemus is not going to like. Um, he says uh, to Neoptolemus, "Thy nature was not framed to speak falsehood, or contrive harm, but since the prize of victory is so dear, endure it. Um, will be just will be just another day, <laughs> but for one brief hour devote thyself to serve me without shame, and then for I hereafter be the pearl of righteousness." So we have this sense that deception is a tactic for him. Um, the and the the moral considerations of it will set aside. We'll 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 be just another day. <laughs> that that sounds like a line out of Dante, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> Dante, another place where Odysseus is not presented as uh, terribly heroic. Ah, point taken. Point taken. Well, and also uh, Machiavellian, um, the 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 prince who must know um, when to be humane and when to be the beast. Right, and which beast to be, whether a lion or a fox. Um, that that's sort of lying here behind what Odysseus says. You know, we can be righteous another day, but today victory means we do this, we do falsehood. Um, the literally the first thing that we learn about him in the play is that he is deserted Philoctetes, Philoctetes, whatever his yeah, that that he deserted him. Um, but even then, he says that he was ordered to do that by those who command, so presumably the sons of Atreus. Um, because of the way that Philoctetes was a disturbance in the camp, um, and so he was left on this island um, just because his noise disturbed the peace. So right away, he seems... And, and because his wounds stank. That's always a yeah. detail that... I, I, I always think is just especially terrible. They they didn't like the way he smelled because of this wound, so they abandoned him. Yeah. I, I In my translation, the smell does not come up until later. Um, he's I'm making, not, oh, he's making taken, so much taken. noise. His, his right, moans. Right, right. Philotides, just, just be quiet. And he's like, ah. Well, later on, we actually, uh, later in the play, we actually get to see dramatized on the stage um, one of these episodes in which he is um, racked with pain to the point of delirium. Um, so the audience actually gets to hear and feel within themselves the sound which Odysseus heard, which led him to abandon the sky on an island. So I don't know. I, I feel like there's some there's something of a moral test going on. Um, in the performance of the play, even with the audience, you get to hear the same cries that led Odysseus to this callous abandonment and lead Neoptolemus to to pity. Um, you that's get, good. That's good. That's that's very Stanley Fish. Yeah. So, um, so lacking in pity, um, considers virtue considers considers justice something to turn off and on depending on what is expedient for victory um, Neoptolemus says well I, I I would rather just I would rather use force than guile I would rather use force than guile 
And Odysseus says, Son of a valiant sire, I too in youth had once a slow tongue and an active hand, but since I have proved the world, I clearly see that words, not deeds, give mastery over men. All right. Um, words, not deeds, give mastery. And then uh, a bit later on, uh, he is asked, uh, he's asked a question, uh, but his answer is, uh, now one thing is mine to say, I am known to vary with the varying need, and when tis tried, who can be just and good, my peer will not be found for piety. But though on all occasions covetous of victory, this once I yield. So in this one moment, uh, he says, you know, I can vary according to need. And when it's needful for someone to be just and good, you won't find a rival for me in those things. Um, and so in this moment, I will yield to you. So there, there's this malleability to the character, um, this expedience to him that really does not sit well with what I think, what, what feels like the pretty clear moral compass of all the rest of the play. Yeah, and I mean, there's even a, an illogic to it, right? I mean, if, if someone were to say, uh, I am a courageous man, except when the moment calls for cowardice, I, I think we would rightly say, then you're not actually courageous. Yeah, yeah, well, and, you know, t to be you know, to, to, to you know, take a later generation and, and find Aristotle, um, Aristotle would say you are, um, you're equivocating at this point, um, because bravery and courage are, uh, they're mutually exclusive terms. However, they are, they are complex terms. You know, one moment might call for standing in the face of danger, and another moment running away from danger will be the wise and the virtuous thing, you know, because there's this always this right time, right place, right way, etc. when dealing with virtue. But he's straight up saying, sometimes lion's good, and sometimes justice is good. He's, he's not just saying occasions vary on what justice will look like. He's just straight up saying sometimes vice, sometimes virtue, the rule is expedience, the goal is victory. He also has a really funny moment of cowardice, I think, when he's he's trying to stop yes. Neoptolemus from giving the bow back to Philoctetes. And he says, you know, I've got my hand on my sword. And Neoptolemus says, yeah, I've got my hand on my sword, too. And in my head, <laughs> in my head, there's a beat. And Odysseus said, I'm going to go get the army. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is exactly how I would play that scene. You know, like Odysseus, you know, Odysseus acts as if he's going to, you know, kind of bully Neoptolemus, but Neoptolemus is not having any of it. Um, yeah, and Odysseus, it, he does not cover himself with, uh, with glory in that in that little moment. Well, also, well, and on, honestly, that moment, and you know, Michael, I want to hear your comment on this. I mean, the moment when I find him most detestable I, th I think you've pointed to the moment when he's most buffoonish but the moment that I find him most detestable is when uh, Neo, Neo ah, I'm just gonna say Neoptolemus uh, you know tries to make a sort of warrior's code objection you know I mean we should not do this to someone who's been a you know an ally to us loyal to us in battle so on and so forth 
And then, you know, Odysseus spends several lines uh, convincing him that, you know, uh, right now don't think of him as an ally. Yes. Right. Well, because it's always it's always the demands of the moment that this version of Odysseus cares about. Nothing is right or wrong as long as it gets us what we want. And and he uses he uses the plural pronoun there. It is us he's talking about. And I, I think one of the interesting things about the conversation between Neoptolemus and Philoctetes when Neoptolemus is trying to convince him to give him the bow is that he makes up this story about how Odysseus and the sons of Atreus have done him wrong too. And I, I think it becomes kind of clear over the course of that story that he's only half lying. Like he, he knows Odysseus is not on his side, that they just happen to have a similar purpose at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good. That's good. Well, I mean, Sophocles wrote a play about that one too. I mean, it it ends in Big Ajax killing himself because he's so humiliated. Um, at the, you know, at Odysseus being the one who receives the armor of Achilles. Um, and I wanted, and Neoptolemus gets so close to telling that to Philoctetes because Philoctetes hears, you know, he 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 hears about Odysseus receiving the armor and says, well. Ajax would have never let that happen. And Neoptolemus right, is like, right. yeah, my dude, uh, he's dead too. Well, also, if, uh, how does Neoptolemus know that? He could only know it from what Odysseus has told him. So who knows yeah. what version of the story he's even getting? Because Odysseus is clearly not going to tell him a version that makes him look like a jerk. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is the guy that at the end of the Odyssey... Uh, uh, tells when he's telling his own wife the story of his adventures um, he mentions Circe in half of one line and then follows it with like eight lines describing the underworld adventure well I mean come <laughs> on David what? <laughs> he's not an idiot <laughs> yeah but that's the, that, that, I made that, it, that's I made the it with this goddess for 12 years doesn't sound great <laughs> while you were while you were yeah. at home patiently being faithful unweaving the loom every night <laughs> oh goodness 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 yeah well michael i, I want to turn to the play's title character philoctetes or philoctetes however you want to pronounce it uh he both holds the play's MacGuffin, the bow of heracles which we've mentioned uh but and he's a he's a character who i feel like in another play could be the most hated uh, except that this play has this version of Odysseus. So, if you'll indulge a bit of Aristotelianism, what kinds of fear and pity does Philoctetes invoke? Well, you you have the fear and pity of the alienated soul, the social outcast. And, and in that sense, who he is is represented very much by the island of Lemnos that he's stranded on. It's a barren land, uninhabited except for Philoctetes, uh, where even when somebody comes by, which people very rarely do because there's no port, uh, nobody comes close enough to help him. And even when they do come close enough to help him, nobody will take him home. Um, so he is cut off from all other human contact to the extent that the chorus is openly amazed that he managed to live so apart from human contact for so long. And in fact, when you when you when you're reading the play, or at least when I was reading the play, I expected Philoctetes to be some sort of 
bestial man, some sort of wild animal, which is how he's described several times in the play. But in fact, he's incredibly articulate and um, and very, very human. And so you, you really do feel for him. Um, for a moment, which I mentioned a, a minute ago, it seems like there's going to be a kind of community of suffering between him and Neoptolemus. But Neoptolemus yeah. is at least halfway lying about the things he's been through, right? He's he's at the very least not saying these in order, in saying these things to actually share in Philoctetes' suffering. He's he's saying them to get something from him. Um, to me, one of the most moving moments of the play, maybe the most moving, is when Philoctetes has gone through his um, symphony of pain that he goes through and he wakes up and Neoptolemus is still there and he's just shocked because nobody's ever been yeah. there before. You know, this is this is a person who's so, so completely alienated by the snake bite and the disease that came from it that he cannot imagine anybody would even stand there while he goes through with it. Um, so I, I found that very moving. And, and I guess that's pity and uh, and fear for that matter. The other uh, the other matter of pity and fear is the fact that he is an innocent sufferer for the most part in this play. And it really goes to show you the fragility of human life. He says, um, bear in mind how everything for human beings is strange and so precarious. Things can go well, then change into their opposite. And that, that is kind of the essence of Greek tragedy. Uh, the chorus says outright that he did nothing to deserve his suffering, that it's something that happened to him. And I think the thing that's the most Euripidean about this play is the way that the gods come off as uh, really kind of brutal and petty for no reason. They actively reward the wicked. They actively punish good people. Uh, and uh, Philoctetes outright says that he finds the gods themselves disgraceful. So I, I think yeah. I think those are the two registers in which you you feel these you feel this catharsis you you feel for this guy because he's so completely alone and because much of it if not all of it is not his fault now there, there's some suggestion late in the play that in fact Philoctetes is making things worse for himself um, and and so there's something there to to pity and fear as well but I think for the most part this play presents his suffering as unearned. Although, yeah, I, and I, I think you're right about all that, Michael. I, I think what still strikes me about him, though, even given all that, is, I mean, there is a, I, I think, a resonance with Achilles and the Iliad in that, you know, he his hatred for Agamemnon and Menelaus and Odysseus is so total that he won't even entertain going back to the walls of Troy to save the rest of the Argives. Because if he did that, then those three might not suffer as much. Right. Well, and he's, he's defined himself by his hatred of them. He says at one point that if he goes with them, he doesn't know what sort of person he'll be on the other side of it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's something almost Prometheus at, that, at those moments. Um, no matter what you do to me and no matter what good end it might achieve because I would be helping this God figure who has so abandoned me at the back end of the world. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to stay here and rot in misery because helping would be worse. 
And I think that, I mean, and it's been a few years since I've taught Aristotle's Poetics, but I mean, that for me is what invokes the fear here, uh, is that, you know, my soul is also capable of that kind of hatred. Right. Yeah. That he's been twisted by this experience he's had. And, and Oh, to be sure, yeah, I, I don't blame him for that, but I certainly fear its potential. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about that is that he's taken a virtue, this, this need for justice, and he has turned it into a vice, the need for revenge. And it, it, that's a move that makes sense in a world that is fundamentally unjust, right? As he says it is, as the Chorus says it is, as Neoptolemus says it is. The, this is a world where bad things are going to happen to good people, not as much as they happen to bad people, but more than they happen to bad people. Odysseus is one of the few heroes who makes it home from the Trojan War and, and really, you know, he gets what he wants. Um, everybody else, people who are way better than Odysseus, certainly in the context of this play, die horrible deaths. And yet, um, and yet Odysseus wins. So how can you believe in justice and not revenge in an unjust universe? Yeah. It's interesting that Neoptolemus doesn't just try to persuade him by saying you're a victory condition <laughs> and this will help us to finally conquer Troy and leave. But also uh, the sons of is it Aesculapius? Um, the yeah. grandsons of Hermes are with the armies of Troy. Um, famous doctors, famous surgeons who can cure anything and a cure. Um, a remedy for your injury for your pain is waiting for you on the plains outside of Troy. Um, and even that he would refuse because along with it would, would mean giving the sons of Atreus and Odysseus what they want. Yeah, I mean, it, it is staggering to my mind, uh, but, you know, uh, as, as you know, as you guys talked about, I'll put it that way, when you talked about uh, Tintern Abbey, you know, I mean, that there is a loftiness, there is a magnanimity there, there's a greatness to his character uh, that just exceeds my own, and I mean, I, you know, I, I am awestruck in its presence, and I'm also terrified of it. Well, David, all three of our main characters are one removed from greatness. Philoctetes inherits the bow of Heracles, Odysseus inherits the armor of Achilles, and Neoptolemus is the son of Achilles. Now, you can go wherever you want examining Neoptolemus, but uh, along the way, hit this point. Since the son of Achilles undertakes the most significant changes over the course of the play, I think, disagree with me if you want to, uh, with the exception of the final act of Philoctetes, do you see his change more as a return to the honor and nobility of Achilles or as the emergence of something that didn't exist before Philoctetes undertakes his transformation? And also, how the heck did I just say the honor and nobility of Achilles out loud? <laughs> I mean, that's a good place to, to start. And I, I don't want to recap everything that we did in the 
Iliad episodes dealing with the the presentation of Achilles' character and the ways that it uh, shifts. But one of the defining traits of Achilles uh, is his youth. He is a very uh, he is a young man when he is uh, you know uh, roped into the Trojan War and the the reactions that he has a young man who knows that he is doomed to die young if he takes this path but has chosen to accept that path anyway because he knows because because it promises glory and he decides that that's worth it you know dead Achilles thinks differently in the Odyssey but living Achilles young Achilles um, Achilles the I don't know he's a kind of fool I think um, those are the choices that he makes and so his uh, the the anger of Achilles the rage of Achilles the discontentment the moping of Achilles in the Iliad are coming out of this uh, this youth this uh, the youth who, who has made this hard choice and is realizing that it's not turning out the way he the way he wanted so Neoptolemus is also young, but he is a, uh, he seems to have a, a, a kind of youthful idealism. He wants to live up to a particular kind of model, and actions that do not accord with that model um, you know, are, uh, it's very difficult to talk him into them, and when he has been talked into it, as, and Odysseus is very good at talking people into things. Uh, when he is talked into it, um, the burden of it uh, is is awful. Um, he has a moment where he breaks out uh, in these kinds of cries of pain that are actually very much like the cries of pain that Philoctetes has just gone through. Um, he is in the throes, not of a, of a wounded body, but of a wounded soul. Um, you know, it is a moral injury for Neoptolemus. Um, I don't want to get too uh, too psychological and all the rest of it, but it is interesting to me that for Neoptolemus, uh, Achilles is a hero and a story for him, not a parent with whom he had an actual relationship that would have. Uh, given both intimacy and also humanized him in a way. Uh, there's a strong, uh, a strong movement towards pietas, towards the revering of of parents and father in particular, uh, in the culture that we see in these ancient Greek epics. Um, but that can be in some way balanced by. Um, knowledge of the father in his age or in his weakness. Um, that is something that Neoptolemus never experiences. Uh, his father is only this absent, you know, mythical in his own lifetime paragon. Uh, the weight of that you see him publicly bearing in this play. Um, in terms of a transformation, I don't know if it's a... I don't, I'm not sure that it's actually a change. I do see it as a return because he's not compelled to any any of this under under by by circumstance. The, you don't have that moment in a, in a tragedy where um, the tragic hero who's proceeded in some kind of obstinate blindness 
finally has their moral failings forced upon them. He knows what he's doing the whole time, and finally the pain of going against uh, what he knows is right uh, comes out. Before we turn to that scene, another thing about Achilles, uh, we, we, in remembering the Achilles at the beginning of the Iliad, we sometimes forget the Achilles at the end of the Iliad, which I think we should regard as, as an equally famous and iconic scene in the minds of Sophocles' audience, which is when Achilles has pity on, on Priam. Yeah, point taken, so, point taken. So that also is something that's here. Uh, the youth of Achilles, the absence of Achilles, but also the pity of Achilles, I think, is important. I also don't ever remember Achilles lying, though he does collaborate with uh, Patroclus in the impersonation scheme. Um, so, when Neoptolemus bursts out, uh, he says, Now tis my turn to exclaim, Ah me, what shall I do? Uh, Philoctetes, what, what's the problem, man? Um, I know not how to shift the troublous word, tis hopeless, uh, so my wretched lot hath fallen. Um, he says, all is offense to one who hath forced himself from the true bent to an unbecoming deed. This is the way Neoptolemus tells his story, that he was bent truly, and then he bent himself the wrong way. Um, he is... A, uh, he is appalled that his baseness will appear, that rings his soul. Um, o heaven, must a double vileness then be mine, both shameful silence and most shameful speech. So that some of those points that y'all were making earlier about how Neoptolemus is telling a story that is probably true in a lot of parts, but he's not telling the whole story. And the reason even why he's telling the bits that are true um, is for this ultimate deceiving end. He's ashamed of both of those things. Uh, he's distressed, um, and, not, and and all of this is before he relents. This is the moment in which he re reveals to Philoctetes that this has been this has been a plot. This was a deception. All right, uh, and then Philoctetes appeals to him. Thou art not base but seemest to have learnt some baseness from base men. Now as tis meet, be better guided. <laughs> Leave me mine arms and go. And Neoptolemus turns to the chorus, What shall we do? At which point in comes Odysseus, right? Um, the, bad you know, the bad angel pops up on the other shoulder. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, Odysseus says his say and has his way, right? But but you see in that moment that Neoptolemus, it it hurts him enormously to do what he's doing, and he is this close to relenting on his own, right? So yeah, in the end, he does bring the bow back. Um, Odysseus threatens violence. Neoptolemus threatens violence right back, and Odysseus runs to get more violent people. Um, but still, we even before that moment when he brings the bow back, there is that moment before Odysseus shows up in which he nearly relents in his own right. So I I I think Neoptolemus comes out of this play looking looking pretty good. Um, he was weak, 
you know, he was young, he was callow, he let the older strategist, you know, talk him into something that that he knows he shouldn't have done. Um, but we see him repent before necessity compels it. And when push comes to shove, uh, he does the right thing. So uh, I, I, I feel pretty good about this Neoptolemus. Less good about the Neoptolemus of the Aeneid. <laughs> uh, Go ahead. Uh, who kills Priam in front of uh, in front of the altar um, as he's begging for mercy? That's a that's a some that's a less good look on Neoptolemus. Um, but this particular Neoptolemus uh, seems like a pretty admirable guy. And that's part of what's fun about these stories is that, you know, there is no uh, authoritative version of any of these characters. It's always, uh, they're always up for grabs. Is this the only place in Greek tragedy where somebody does a bad thing and makes up with it, makes up for it before there's disaster? Ooh, I don't know about the only one, but it's certainly not common. I mean, because this does not feel like the other Greek tragedies I know. And I've read... Um, I think all the extant tragedies, although it's been many years for some of them, um, and this yeah. just this just seems like something new under the sun for me. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. I think we'd have to go back through just to to make the exhaustive claim, but to be uh, that that sense that this is an exception to the rule, I think is certainly is certainly there. Uh, this is a character who does the right thing before it's too late and does it without having to be crushed by the situation. Um, all the pressure that's on Neoptolemus to do the right thing is internal. And that's really important, I think. Yeah, that makes good sense. Well, Michael, I know that you have taught and loved the Euripides tragedy Heracles, speaking of Euripides, uh, so I want to let you comment on the strange appearance of the OG destroyer of Troy. Is, the, is this just a paradigm instance of deus ex machina, or is there something else going on with Heracles at the end of this play? I'm going to let you tell me what, what else you think is going on, and I'm just going to comment on the ways that this is paradigmatic. Uh, because I, I think, I, I think it, it is certainly there to do the thing de, deus ex machina, normally does, which is to let people off the hook. Um, One major conflict of the play, as I I discussed, has been the goodness of the gods and the fairness of fate. And and Philoctetes suffers more or less for no reason, especially early on. So this is a world in which good men suffer and bad men triumph. It's just the nature of the world that this play is set in. Heracles' job at the end of the play is to pronounce a kind of benediction on Philoctetes. And he tells Philoctetes that his destiny is to make honor out of his sufferings. So we we have this world in which somebody like Philoctetes suffers for no reason. Heracles is there to tell him it's not actually for no reason. All of this has been building up for this opportunity for you to make a name for yourself, which is why it's kind of sad that nobody in our culture knows (laughs) Philoctetes, because it's like he <laughs> suffered and still, still he didn't get to make a name for himself. The other thing he tells him, 
is that he and Neoptolemus need each other. Neither one of them are going to be able to do it for themselves. So Philoctetes has lost his family because he's been on Limnos for so long. Neoptolemus has lost his family because Achilles died before he even knew him. So now we have this new family that uh, that had already been forming, to be sure, but which Heracles cements the bonds of. And he, he cements that community of suffering that we saw in the earliest parts of this play. Um, he makes it real by saying that these two guys need each other. And you can, you can kind of imagine um, what future the two of them have together. In a real sense, what I would say is that Heracles' presence makes this play not a tragedy. I don't know what it is. It's not a comedy. But I do not think the play is a tragedy because at the end, um, you have a genuine redemption of this guy. We don't see that redemption take place on the stage, but we know that's the direction it's headed. It's what's over the horizon they're going to sail off into at the end of the play. Um, Philoctetes' life has meaning at the end of the play, and so does Neoptolemus's. And Heracles is there to announce that to them in case there was any doubt remaining. Whether that's effective or not, I don't know. But I do think that's what it's doing. What What am I missing, Nathan? No, I mean, I honestly, I, I was gonna, I, I kicked it to you because I, it's been many, many years since I've read the Euripides Heracles, and I didn't know if this was, you know, consistent with what Euripides is doing or if this is a new use of Heracles. And and from your description seems like it might be the latter. Well, Euripides is after Sophocles, right? And the deus ex machina in in his Heracles is not Heracles um, at all, right? It's, um, oh, who are the two gods who come and drive Heracles crazy? I, like I said, it's been a lot of years. Uh, Iris and Madness, <laughs> I think they're called. So I, I, it, it's really quite the opposite of what Euripides is doing in that play with the deus ex machina. Now there is another Euripidean play, and now I can't remember which one it is, wherein a god does come and pronounce this kind of benediction. And and it, it feels almost like Euripides, the god-hater, has uh, has lost his edge a little bit. Um, but but here, yeah, I I I think uh, I think Sophocles means it straightforwardly. Heracles is here. Yep. Heracles is here to ke- to keep this play from devolving into tragedy. Uh, quick quick note. Um, Sophocles is. Uh, significantly older than Euripides but you but but they are uh they are contemporaries okay and in fact um in fact Sophocles outlives Euripides um but he dies when he's like 90 91 does Sophocles so um but but he still manages to actually outlive Euripides so if we see any if we feel like we're seeing anything Euripidean in this play um He's seen Euripides plays. <laughs> All right. Well, in, in, in that case, David, I mean, maybe I'd be willing to say that this, given the, the kind of Euripidean mouthism on stage for much of this play, I, I think I might be willing to say that the, the Heracles appearance at the end of the play is a kind of repudiation of Euripides. Yeah. Right. I, it's an interesting point. I mean, is Heracles dies... Um, Heracles dies of poisoning, racked with pain, uh, but uh, is unable to die because he is he is half a god, and so he kind of lingers in this 
um, the state of pain that is then uh, he, he in order to get relief he is uh, cremated while alive and that releases his divine soul to ascend to Olympus and become a god there right so Heracles is this uh, in his his overarching story is one of of endless suffering and labor largely because of the uh, the enmity of Hera right the queen of gods um, but also as a result of some of his own foolishness um, some of his own impulsive violence right but he is the he is a character who is who is frequently suffering laboring doing penance exiled from the presence of friends cut off from family and then ultimately dies racked by poison um, but then ascends to godhood so there's there's other ways like there's the specific Heracles of Euripides and the handling of that and and the the deus ex machina within that kind of uh, theater context but the figure of Heracles himself also represents a kind of um, uh, apotheosis through through pain uh, that that could fit here as well. And I I I, I looked up the dates there, and uh, Euripides as Heracles is I, I believe four sixteen BCE, and Philoctetes is four oh nine BCE. So if you're counting backwards. Uh, this this play yep. is younger than that one, so I, I you know it, it really it really may be a commentary on it in some ways. I don't know. Oh, that's fast. I had never thought about looking up that chronology. Yeah, I just assumed Euripides was a generation after Sophocles. My mistake. That's always been the way that I've taught it, but this semester instead of just teaching Sophocles in my sophomore survey, I taught one from each of the. Th- each of the big three and having to write the dates out on the board I suddenly realized that a lot of the stuff that I kind of had in my head about their relationships didn't quite make chronological sense yeah that's interesting because I always feel like Euripides is kind of the the nobility of the tragedy breaking down a little bit and going wild which is which is why I prefer him usually to the other two but I see now that that I mean that may be true. He may be at going wild, but it's not a, it's not a just a matter of chronology. Yeah, and also the three of them exist alongside you know probably dozens of other tragedy you know tragedians uh, that are just not extant for us. Right? Wouldn't it be great if somebody yeah. found all of those? Indiana Jones, man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, David, this play absolutely shapes my imagination, to borrow a phrase from uh, uh, before they were live, every time I revisit it. And one of the reasons is that, taken in isolation, each of our three main characters has a rationally compelling case why his main concerns should be the other two's main concerns. So as you took on this play for the first time, were you inclined to look for a single moral vision to systematize their opposing agendas? Or did you do something else with the three ver- versions of honor and duty and the warrior's code? Yeah, as I was reading it, it was within the context of the ways that uh, the conflicting and irreconcilable demands of the gods are constantly creating this this plurality of moral vision in Greek literature. Um, the 
the fact that the gods demand things that you can't do at the same time <laughs> uh, is is constantly coming up um, in in the earliest myth mythic sources that we've got in the epics in the theater it's uh, it's it's something that's that's throughout um, so just sort of digging into this in this moment right so what things in the Iliad are the works of the gods <laughs> I mean they're they're I mean their sticky Olympian fingerprints are on pretty much everything mutually contradictory things are the Greeks winning it's the gods are they losing it's the gods um, the Greeks are fated to win but also the Greeks are fated to be delayed to win and uh, you know you've got the scene where uh, Achilles prays for uh, Patroclus as he charges out in Achilles armor and Zeus answers half of his prayer right um, so when Odysseus says this is the thing we've got to do because you are necessary Neoptolemus and the bow of Philoctetes is necessary um, and so we've got to do what's necessary in order for this oracle revealed fate to happen um, he's right because there's an oracle revealed fate and that's got to happen but Neoptolemus brings up the uh, you know kind of the what what are the demands of heroism what what does what is that what does that require um, but that whole oath keeping um, showing of courage all those kinds of things uh, there are also um, there are also divine edicts in even those social uh, demands those uh, you know I mean think about the ways that Zeus in the Odyssey for example is uh, the god who's supposed to be enforcing the cultural rules connected to hospitality and yet he's the one ganging up with Poseidon to punish the Phaeacians for following the rules of hospitality um, so in, 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 in a real way that when you read I, I think when I was reading uh, this play the ways that each of them present their case in a way that's compelling um, is makes sense because they're in a world in which the gods are telling everybody stuff that doesn't all go together <laughs> and it's very very difficult to do what all the go to do what the gods say exhaustively um, because the right. gods say different things <laughs> sure and and this I mean and I didn't realize this until well into grad school uh, is what makes me realize what a hustler Aristotle is <laughs> because he he talks about the single hamartia yeah. that you know leads the you know the tragic protagonist to doom, and it's like there's not one mark to miss. There's four marks, and usually the tragic hero hits at least two of them. Yeah, well it's it's this it's the Orestes story, right? Like, yeah, I'd summarize that quickly. Yeah. Well, it's it's the first well after the introduction in the Iliad. We have the gods on the top of Olympus um, talking about the murder of Agamemnon by Clytemnestra and her lover Aegisthus, and then how Orestes is in the wings about to avenge the murder of his father. But then the story of Orestes is uh, the gods, you know, you must avenge your murdered dad, the gods demand it. But also, you must not kill your mother 
the gods demand it. But then your yep. mother, but your mother killed your father. <laughs> well, this is this is why Alistair McIntyre's treatment of tragedy in um, After Virtue is so impressive to me because he treats it as what do you do when you have a series of different moral duties that conflict with each other? Yeah. And you see that really clearly in Antigone, which is his um, his example. But I think you also see it quite clearly in um, in the Aresti, uh, the Aristia, as you as you point out there, David. Yeah. Right, and the libation bears in particular. Yeah. So when you see it here, um, Odysseus says the oracle has said these are the necessary victory conditions. Everything else must be set aside in order to achieve this. And when Neoptolemus says there is a particular way a hero ought to be, everything else must be set aside for this. And when Philoctetes says, Philoctetes says, um, I have been treated with injustice by tyrants, and everything else must be set aside to honor this. They're all standing in a pretty good place because each one of those things is uh, an ethos for which you will find sanction in other texts, in other plays, in other epics. <laughs> um, but in the end, you have Hercules, who in some ways represents all of them. Um, he is a god, and so his word is a word of the gods. Um, but he also represents heroism, but he also represents uh, a um, a kind of ultimate vindication after suffering, right? And remember, Heracles is the one who releases Prometheus, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, if there's if there's any way to try to square this circle. Heracles is the closest thing that you can come to doing it, but it, but again, I, I don't think that's that that in a, an attempt to more harmonize all of these conflicting impulses in the corpus of Greek literature overall. I think that's going to be impossible. But Sophocles comes very close to doing it artistically here. Nathan, would you suggest that Sophocles presents the Greek worldview? <laughs> The Greco-Roman worldview. Oh, Michael, Michael, Michael. I, <laughs> that, I, I that, will that say, one. And, I, and, and I'm not sure why this connection occurs to me right now, uh, but one 20th century writer who does this about as well as anyone I can think of is Arthur Miller. Uh, I, I think of, of um, All My Sons, and I think of Death of a Salesman, and I mean, I think of those both as stories of these impossible-to-reconcile uh, narrative demands and I think that those are you know in both of those plays at least uh, what what tears the central character apart then he pisses it down the drain in the crucible well you know a play for children <laughs> I, 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 you know the uh, the uh, partisan allegory is always a temptation no well, I mean all my sons in death of a salesman are flawless in my opinion that's what makes the crucible so uh, infuriating. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't disagree, Michael. I don't One of disagree. these days we'll have to do an episode of The Crucible and, and we can just yell about it. 
No, because Michael, you know that I will be unable to resist yeah, you, making an apologia for yeah, it. Yeah, you'll you'll come to its defense. This is the greatest yeah. play anybody's ever written. I, I probably won't say that. I'll probably say there are some interesting things going on here that Michael's ignoring. <laughs> that 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 is Gilmore's homartia. Sure. <laughs> that episode would I end with that. me putting an axe right through his forehead. <laughs> well, at any I'm rate, close enough oh, to do it now, Nathan. <laughs> uh, shelter in place, Michael. Shelter in place. Well, at any rate, since we're in the mood for meta commentary now, Michael, uh, I want to take it around the horn here at the end. This is a play that lends itself to conversations about generational legacies, about disability, about the ethics of warfare, about men and gods, about a dozen other things, a lot of which we've talked about, a lot of which we haven't. We're not going to be able to say everything that there is to say about this play today, but whither would you invite our listeners' attention as they read the play? Uh, I'll be real quick. Um, the, the play is an interesting tertiary plot or tertiary commentary about education. Um, so much of the play is about who's following orders from whom. And one of um, one of Philoctetes' proofs that the world is not what it should be is that when you're taught to do wicked things, you go on doing them. So if you have a bad teacher, you're going to be bad. Toward the end of the play, when he refuses to come with them to Troy, when he's just going to let himself die on the island, uh, Neoptolemus tells him, you know, you're being bestial. You're not you're not listening to good teaching and that's a that's a turn and i don't know exactly what to make of it because i've only been thinking about it for a little while but that is a turn that happens in the play from from saying people are bad because their teachers are bad to saying at least some people do bad things because they're not willing to listen to their teachers Hmm. david what do you got in sort of looking at where this falls in Sophocles uh, corpus uh, and just very very quickly kind of reviewing um, there are only a few Sophocles plays for which we actually know performance dates Um, Philoctetes is one uh, 409 and Oedipus at Colonus is the other which is 401 which is uh, after uh, posthumously after uh, Sophocles had died and these two, if you read them alongside each other, there are some really interesting, uh, really interesting connections. Not least of which that that central to the story is a grumpy old exile who simply refuses to come to terms with those who exiled them. When those folks come back to them, trying to kind of, you know, return them into society but in order to bring about some kind of prophesied end. Um, so, uh, Ph- uh, Philoctetes, Philoctetes, and Oedipus, uh, in both of those plays, just kind of say, you know, fate can go to Hades. I'm still mad. <laughs> and I, I find that really interesting, um, not least of which because uh, there's a story associated with Oedipus at Colonus. Um, if I remember right, it's told in uh, Cicero's essay on getting old. Uh, and that is that Sophocles was taken to court uh, in his later years 
uh, by his sons who wanted to uh, have him declared uh, unable to manage his own affairs and that in the courtroom Sophocles read drafts of Oedipus at Colonus in order to demonstrate that he was still of sound mind so that that uh, the grumpy old man <laughs> who's who's been who feels that he's been you know mistreated and hard done by and is really gonna have a hard time forgiving um, even if it seems necessary I don't know I, I I wonder I wonder if there's anything biographical that Sophocles is maybe working through <laughs> in these stories uh, kind of a stretch but uh, still s- sort of sort of interesting to consider uh, how how much of the grumpy old man that you see in Philoctetes and Oedipus at Colonus might be Sophocles himself? That's fascinating. And to swing it from classical Athens up to the Iraq War, um, I'll point listeners to an interview that I did on Christian Humanist Profiles a few years back on the book Theater of War by Brian Dorries. Uh, Brian Dorries was a part of a project called Theater of War that uh, did sort of readers theater performances of Athenian tragedies for military combat veterans and he has a lot of stories about how this play in particular really connects with veterans returning from the war zone Uh, you know uh, if you wonder what those connections might be listen to that podcast read this play it's really good stuff and we're going to talk about some more good stuff next week aren't we Michael we are. We're going to talk about James Baldwin's short story, Sunny, Sunny's Blues. Awesome, awesome. In the meantime, listeners, you can find us at uh, yeah, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com if you want to email us. You can find us at christianhumanist.org. You would think I would know these after 10 years. Uh, that is our website where we announce new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, and you can tweet us at ch radio network at twitter uh wow i i, I really don't know what it, what just happened there. you know i forgot him a couple weeks ago if uh if any of us had a brain in our head we would have used standard names for everything but here we are <laughs> yes indeed yes indeed <laughs> Here we are on the christian humanist radio network our press liaison is kristen philippic our editor is none other than dr michael farmer And I'm Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael and in behalf of David saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.